Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Stunning Granada, a bi-weekly podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes canon, and my friend Jackson Eflin, Hi. a relative neophyte. We're rapidly approaching the point, Jackson, where we don't really have to use that classification anymore. Yeah, then I'll have a doctorate. <laughs> Let's not go that far. <laughs> we watched the 1980s Granada television series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Jeremy Brett and David Burke, and then we talk about it. This week... We have a very special guest, our friend, and the sequel to my prequel on the Equalizers, Madison Jones. Madison, welcome to A Study in Granada. Thanks for having me. Is this uh, is this the Mind Palace? Welcome to the Mind Palace. You got one in. You did it. Thank you. <laughs> That's my only Sherlock joke I'm making the entire episode. <laughs> Time will tell. So this week we are covering The Norwood Builder. Uh, this is a particular favorite of mine. Jackson will attest that the amount of I've talked about being excited for this episode in particular is a lot. You brought it up at least once. A day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even since before we started doing the podcast. Even since before I met. Like, I would just, like, be sitting at home in my room watching... What What are they watching in the 2006s? Danny Phantom. Danny Phantom. Oh, yeah, I watching Danny Phantom. And Mike was just, like, burst in my room, like, dude, Nora Builder is so good. And I close it again. I'm like, whoa, the ghosts are really real. I also sent a lot of mailers, like political campaigns do. That was just like a small monograph on how much I love the Norwood Builder. And I just like blanket the Tri-County area with them. Back when we both lived in the same Tri-County area, I guess. We live in sort of a, the Tri-State area now. Yeah. So, uh, Madison, yes. <laughs> what has been your experience with Sherlock Holmes? Have you had any experience with the original canon? Or is it mostly adaptations, more recent adaptations? It's really like a little of this, little of that. Mm-hmm. I've seen both Robert Downey Jr. movies. I don't remember much from them, except that he fake dies at the end of the second one. Spoilers. (laughs) I've also watched a good amount of video game playthroughs of the Sherlock Holmes video games. Mm -hmm. Mm. Oh, then you're pretty much set for this. Watching this episode and watching those games, it seems like the games are trying to emulate this version of, Mm -hmm. of Sherlock Holmes, for sure. I don't think there's anything else. I think those are my, like major touchstones for Mm. Sherlock Holmes. I'd never seen the show before. You're kind of about where I was at the start of the show. Honestly, more so, because you have the video games. I haven't even cultured like that. I was say it may only take you one season to get out of being a neophyte. Yeah. I want to make it clear that I was not playing the video games. I was watching other people (laughs) play the video games. These these video games, were they like the point and click? Like, (laughs) you have to look at this room until you find the clue. Sort of. Oh, no. They were kind of like roam around, find clues on the ground type video games. So Hmm. in one of them, uh, Watson shoots a gun out of someone's hand, and it's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I mean, so far, really, we've only seen Watson shoot a dog. Oh, fuck. What? (laughs) Not this episode. And it's not like on screen. It's not like a, a shot of on screen of Watson shooting a dog. Was it relevant to the plot or was it really just hellish like, like, like gore effects? Just like, like the brain thing. Yeah, the blood splatter, though, from off screen was pretty intense. Yeah. I'll direct the listener's attention to the Copper Beaches. You know that one scene in Dracula Dead and Loving It where there's like, just like blood spurting out of the coffin? It's like that. It's not like that. No one's ne- seen that movie. Anyway, I've, I've um, never seen it. Sorry. You're better off not having done so. So, let's jump into the synopsis. John Hector McFarlane comes to implore Holmes for help. The young clerk is accused of having stricken dead Jonas Oldacre with his walking stick before burning his body. 
Earlier the same day, Oldacre had informed McFarlane that he intended to bequeath his fortune to him, and summoned him to his Norwood home to draw up his will. McFarlane's blood-soaked walking stick has been found at Oldacre's house. Therefore, Lestrade hurries to arrest him, but Holmes and Watson carry on with the investigations. For the purposes of this, I've heard it pronounced Lestrade. I've heard it pronounced Lestrade. I think since they pronounce it Lestrade in the show. Inspector Lestrade. That's just the pronunciation we go with. Yeah. Sure. A quick question to you. Mm -hmm. Is Lestrade in every episode, mostly? No. This is our first Lestrade, actually. Yeah, it is. Uh, He will become the sort of police liaison or he's he frequently is the one who shows up to present Holmes with like Mm -hmm. the police oh we have this case that we're not sure about yeah he's like a major character in the Holmes stories Mm -hmm. right yeah it's surprising to me that this is when he shows up because there's a whole season before this right yeah Yeah, the stories in the show don't match up uh the second to last episode of this season the redheaded league is actually the first story after a scandal in bohemia they kind of shuffled the story order around for the shows oh really okay lestrade does show up in earlier stories but this is the first story that he is in that has come up in the show Hmm. although if you're like reading the story at home you're like oh uh the death of moriarty already happened which we haven't even met moriarty in the show who knows if we ever will or if that's coming anytime soon well that leads me to because I listened to the audiobook of the mm-hmm. story, because one of the first lines in it is Holmes and Watson talking, and Holmes lamenting that ever since Moriarty's death, there's just no interesting crimes anymore, <laughs> and he's really bored. They tweaked that here in the show, since that hasn't happened yet, and he does have that malaise about how there's no interesting crime anymore. Yeah. And... Let's talk about that for a minute. From the point of view of the criminal expert, London has become a singularly uninteresting city. Well, I hardly think you find many decent citizens to agree with you. Well, 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 one must not be selfish. The community is the gainer and no one the loser, save the poor unfortunate specialist whose occupation was gone. He's just really sad. <laughs> this is the second time in a row where he's been like, ah, oh, crime is terrible before crime was excellent (laughs) yeah it's like Ah. kids these days and their crime back in my day crime was more interesting (laughs) and i love the look on watson's face there's like a little bit of like what are you talking about yeah (laughs) that's like terrifying but you're you're sad that people are worse at crime his literal comeback is like i'm pretty sure the people of london disagree with you there (laughs) and doesn't he specifically say like i'm not sure if that's true like we um uh, had the case of the papers of ex-president Murillo and the shocking affair of the Dutch steamship Freeland. I smell a mystery. Yes, so this brings us to a game that Jackson and I have played. Now, Madison, I you won't have heard this yet because that episode won't have aired as we're recording this. But in The Dancing Men, when we come to a case that Watson references that we haven't actually seen or isn't a written story, which frequently happens, Jackson and I play a game now where we try to figure out what that case was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the papers of ex-president Murillo actually later Conan Doyle will write into the adventure of Wisteria Lodge, which I do think we will get to. Mm. Even if we don't, it is one of the stories. So Madison, if you could just tell our listeners what the uh, adventure on the steamship Friesland that almost cost both of them their lives was about. They were invited to like a police gala 
that mm-hmm. was on a steamboat. Cool. And some sort of crime lord named mm-hmm. Fizzy Lumpkin decided to try to take out all of the heads of the police. So he wanted to take out Inspector Lestrade. And Lestrade's boss, like basically all the people in Scotland Yard are on this and Detective Holmes gets invited there because like, you know, like he does half of their jobs and someone hijacks the boat and sets it to like full steam ahead and it's going to go over a waterfall. (laughs) Nice. How do they stop the steamship? They don't. Whoa. They're trying to find a way to get everybody off the boat. Mm, Gotcha. You guys can help me out here. I don't know how they would do that, but. Oh, um, I think I remember how this happened. Uh, if memory serves, they took all the vodka and other alcohols from the like refreshments table and poured them in a very straight line across the boat and lit it on fire. So it cut the boat in half. And so only half of it went towards the waterfall. The rest just sort of floated gently off to the shore. Nice. There you go. The <laughs> adventure of the steamship Friesland. They learned that McFarland's mother, once engaged to Old Acre, broke her engagement because she realized he was a fundamentally nasty fellow. Later on, they meet Lestrade. The inspector is delighted, for he found in the victim's burnt warehouses one of his buttons. Soon, Watson discovers that the late Norwood builder has transferred the better part of his money to a Mr. Cornelius. Meanwhile, Holmes spots on the ground a coded message drawn by a vagrant to inform other poor fellows that Old Acre is helpful. But after his second visit to the Norwood Builder, the unfortunate vagrant vanished without a trace. So there's a thing here I want to talk about. And Jackson, we've talked about this a few times. And that's that Watson's getting like better at this. Oh, or yeah. maybe it's that Watson has a good day. Because it kind of goes off and on whether or not how good Watson is at this aspect of it. But the oh, um, Is he usually not as helpful as he is here? Oh, no. There are times where he's like helpful. And there are times where he's just kind of there for background. He's never like... Terrible. Did I really do remarkably badly? Yes. It's just whether or not he's good. So, like, listeners, if you haven't watched the episode, there's a bit where this guy, what's his face? John Hector McFarland. Yeah. McFarland. Where Mr. McFarland shows up and uh, Holmes is like, Now, tell us quietly and slowly who you are and what it is that you want. Uh, you mentioned your name just now as if I should recognize it, but I can assure you beyond the obvious facts that you are a bachelor, a solicitor, and a Freemason, and an asthmatic. I know nothing about you, whatever. Your <clears throat> untidy clothes, chief of legal papers, watch chain, and your somewhat irregular breathing. And I'm like, oh, Watson, you did such a good job. You figured out all that stuff on your own. Yeah, it was just a good element of, like, Watson is picking up, like, picking this up and actually starting to employ the methods just like naturally yeah Mm -hmm. which is why unfortunately holmes will have to kill him at the end of the season and replace him with a new watson to avoid uh (laughs) him surpassing him in his powers watson's whole like purpose and maybe you 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 two who are probably more familiar with the holmes thing is he's kind of there to tell the story right because he is the one who the stories are like from his point of view he chronicles the adventures yeah again as we're recording this we've only released up to season one episode two the dancing men there are many episodes that Madison has not been able to hear where we do talk about Watson more at length. Yeah. Almost solely about Watson sometimes. Yeah. This is really just the Watson show. Watson watch. One reason I really love this series, and I think this episode in particular, is because I firmly believe that Watson is useful mm-hmm. to Holmes in the solving of cases and that a lot of people just make him like the bumbler and there to tell the tale and be impressed. 
and I don't agree with that take. And I think that this series is one reason why. And so that's why we pointed out a lot is kind of my TED talk on why Watson <laughs> should be useful. <laughs> I also put in my notes that Watson getting better at this with the way he says to inspectorless trade when it comes to the burned body that they find, even he's like, come on. Yeah. It's a burnt body that we, that can't be identified except for the pants he was wearing. Mm-hmm. Thank heavens he was wearing his trousers. Oh, I do want to point out, so for those paying attention at home, this is the second episode with skulls in it. So if you're just here for the skulls, this does deliver a little bit. And they're skulls that are on fire. Whenever we finish recording this entire like series, when a studying Granada comes to a close, we'll put together a playlist for the skull enthusiasts. <laughs> What do we all think of Mr. Oldacre? In the conversation with McFarlane's mom, she reveals that they were once engaged and she broke it off because he's nasty and that he sent her a photo of herself with a dagger like on her wedding day. It's kind of the first inkling that because I think everything up to this point, it's like, oh, this dude's kind of like a nice guy. Or like, he, he's like, he's leaving his fortune <laughs> to this sort of... An ex-girlfriend's kid, yeah. basically. And it, it sounds yeah. really noble, somewhat, in that he feels like a connection with the son somehow and wants to make amends or something. And so he's going to give him his fortune. And then you find out that he's like, oh, this dude was like a violent sort of like shitbag. Shitbag. <laughs> you can cuss on this one. Oh, cool. Not gratuitously. Uh, like you do on equalizers all the time. Ugh. What are the no no words of? <laughs> uh, nope. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I like. Um, it's a thing that I hadn't really thought of before that they do. The episode does basically set up Jonas Oldacre as just kind of a dude, like a nice guy. Yeah. You're not led to believe that he's some kind of villain until they talk with Mrs. McFarlane. Yeah. And, like, it's sort of, he starts off being a little bit odd. Because, like, like, he shows up out of nowhere and be like, hey, here's a house. But it doesn't seem that weird. And then it gets, like, worse and worse over time. Uh, So I want to talk about Holmes and Watson, as we always do. Mm. Because we've touched a number of times on how a thing we like about this iteration also is that, like, they're very clearly friends. That, like care about each other and uh not like some of the more modern retellings where it's like why are they friends like how do they enjoy each other's company and i liked this one because at one point holmes actually says to watson let's have some breakfast and then go out together and see what we can do i feel as if i shall need your company and moral support today and it's actually like a very tender moment i mean i think that's a good moment we we joked about it but like holmes is just legitimately bored right mm-hmm. and yeah. he hasn't had any like cool cases in a while and i think he's having sort of like a existential crisis a little bit about how he's not yeah it's like, an extended ennui that like his job's pretty much there he doesn't have anything to yeah. do yeah, so when he's presented with this case that it just seems like he's missing something and he can't figure it out, it's, I think, a double whammy for him, right? Holmes seems legitimately excited that this guy has probably been framed for murder. Or that this guy, like, it's so obvious that he did it. Mm-hmm. But the Holmes, I think, much like, I guess I would say like Matlock in a way, will take a case <laughs> just kind of like, you know what, I believe you. I don't think you did it. I think Holmes is like, I honestly don't think you did it. So I'll, I'll see what I can do. 
but then yeah. it's like more and more oh no he did it i guess it was just boring yeah yeah although like because holmes is so passionate about it this time he kind of has this like there's this sense you get from him that he has a lot of empathy for this kid who's in a bad situation that he feels like if he fails and he's not only failed to solve a mystery but also that he will have failed this innocent person and you get the sense from jeremy brett that like holmes has a lot of feelings he just pushes them down really deep and like doesn't share them a lot like when he's on the case he's very much just like i gotta solve it but but i'm out of ideas and it's, i'm sad uh yeah in the story watson sums it up by saying my companion's expressive face showed a sympathy which was not i'm afraid entirely unmixed with satisfaction which i think is a good description of sherlock when he gets mysteries like this of like yeah, this is a raw deal. Like, we should probably do something about it, but also, like, good mystery! <laughs> yeah. Well, a jolly good murder. Well, and anytime they're, like, interviewing somebody and he knows uh-huh. the answer before the other person does, he looks yeah. very excited that he's, like, <laughs> just so fucking smart, right? <laughs> like, he's yeah. he's just, like, so happy to be there and happy to be solving anything. And there might be even a touch of that he... Maybe he does think that the kid did it because honestly, like with all the facts and everything, it does look kind of open <laughs> and shut. But he's just there to like because it's something to do almost, right? I think the excitement that you talked about is more that like he's excited that yes, it actually is this interesting. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. as he's formed his theory, and as that theory is being proven, it's like, okay, yes, this is actually a cool, interesting mystery and not just like yeah. he did it. Not like he yeah. killed that guy for money. It's like, oh, no, actually, this was a really cool one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we actually get Holmes in, his, in disguise, which, Madison, how'd you feel about the disguise? Well, that whole scene was very confusing. <laughs> I thought it had like a weird like transition in the mm-hmm. show because I wasn't exactly sure what he was doing. Mm. But yeah, I know that it's something that Holmes does that he disguises himself to overhear something it was a kind of a cool moment this is our second episode with holmes in disguise and i say dis- i, I kind of quotes around disguise because really he like must up his hair and rub some dirt on his face uh, i would draw anyone's attention back to scandal in bohemia where he actually puts on like one legitimately good disguise i think he has like fake teeth and prosthetics and like multiple facial hair bits. Really multiple cool. fake cheek hairs that he like. It's it's a good disguise. Mm-hmm. Here he just kind of like some must of his hair and rubbed dirt on his face. Like I made a note. Like maybe should we talk about disguises? And then this like this isn't a disguise. <laughs> that guy doesn't know who he is. Like he yeah. could just show enough. But on the bright side, Jeremy Brett with must up hair. So ultimately, a very good episode. Just on that premise alone. I want to touch real quick back with Holmes and Watson. When Watson offers to look through all those papers, oh yeah, the way Holmes says thank you, yeah, Holmes, would you like me to have a look at these papers? Well, a man's bank account can tell us as much as his diary. Correct. Thank you, Watson. There is very much a like this is going to be useful, but also very much of like this is the boring part of this job. Yeah. So thank you for doing it. Yeah. While Holmes kind of gallivants around the grounds, like, (laughs) I I love those scenes where you were just seeing him wander around outside while Watson was, like, looking through the papers. You see him on the yard just, like, poking stuff with his cane. And (laughs) if you uh, follow our back catalog, you'll find that there are a number of episodes. One in particular, uh, The Crooked Man, which uh, is a couple episodes away as we're releasing these, where he does, like, stride across the ground basically sideways kind of like a crab like (laughs) leg over leg it's very good yeah 
I also like how like all the constables and everything um, don't react to him doing that. They're just like, yep, that's what he does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that a lot of times the inspectors, especially like in town, and I think we touched on this, kind of regard Holmes as like, oh, God, this guy. Like, he's going to show up, and he's going to take this case, like, I got one hour till the pub's open, and it's a murder, and we're done. And then Holmes <laughs> shows up, and they're just like, god damn it. <laughs> Whereas I like that the country police usually are just like, oh my god, Sherlock Holmes is here, this is going to be fun. Like, I get to watch him do his thing. Just party trick. It's like the circus rolled into town for them. Whereas mm-hmm. everybody in the city is like, I could be at the pub right now. <laughs> Instead, I'm watching him, like, roll around on a carpet with a magnifying glass. <laughs> There was a magnifying glass sighting mm-hmm. in this. Do they use those like throughout? Have you seen that already? It comes and goes, but yeah, it, it's been used a few times. Jackson now also has a sort of old timey magnifying glass. Yeah. But also, the screwdriver. Ooh. Oh, dip. I have two different functional screwdrivers that are also parts of fandom things, and I'm proud of that. One of them's a mustache. <laughs> Christ. We touched on this a little bit, Madison. You specifically, kind of. Holmes and the police. Mm-hmm. is a, a through line of a lot of the, even the adaptations. And in the more recent ones, it's become much more like Holmes kind of belittling the police. Yeah. And this story and this episode I like because it really gets to what I what I think of when I read these. And it's very much like they come in, bluster and muster. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a pretty good theory. Do you mind if I go check my theory? And they're like, oh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, yeah, by all means, go be Sherlock Holmes. But we solved it. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure you did. But, you know, I'm just going to go look around. And then inevitably beats them. (laughs) And I like that uh, he says at one point. Well, anything more you'd like to ask, Mr. Holmes? Not until I've been to Blackheath. You mean Norwood? Uh, No doubt that is what I must have meant. It's always like pandering a little bit to like, "Of, of course, you'd know better. You're the police. And then always ends up outsmarting them. Yeah. But Which is still a form of mockery, but like it's a gentle mockery. It's not like to their face mockery. It's just kind of like Right. He's having fun, but he's not gonna make them feel bad while they're like on the job. Not during business hours. Behind closed doors he'll kind of like ridicule the effectiveness and ingenuity of the police department. But like in the field it's very much of like, Yes, I'm sure that's right. Yeah. Well done. Let me but I'm gonna go check over here just you know, just to amuse myself. And I think that that's a thing that a lot of, but you know, I'll call it out specifically Sherlock from BBC. They really put the subtext as text and you are all stupid and worthless. And why are you here? Get out of my way. Right. Yeah. There seems to be, at least in this episode, just sort of a mutual respect for each other because Holmes is just allowed to walk around in this (laughs) crime scene. They don't have any problem with him being there, probably because he's helped them out in the past. And Mm -hmm. also like they know he's mostly on the mark, like, nine out of ten times well, right so and i think very specifically here they know they got their guy yeah mm-hmm. they don't care if he pokes around the crime scene because they, it doesn't matter they got him they got all their evidence they got it and i i'm sympathetic to lestrade being so braggadocious just because the idea of like when you've been beaten pretty much every time like let's arguably say every time holmes outdoes you and you finally got him mm. like i'm sympathetic to them i know that they're played much more um kind of antagonistic in their braggadociousness, but I think we'll find over the run of the show that they take their licks a lot. And so I, I can't fault them for thinking we did it this time. We actually got it this time. It's just a regular murder and we did it. And you think it's a regular murder, but then there's a body double and actually the murdered man wasn't dead the whole time. Yeah. And John Hector McFarlane's a time traveler. 
and silent green as people. <laughs> Bruce Willis was dead. <laughs> Uh, there's a quick last thing to touch on here, uh, Jackson, that you and I have kind of noticed this season. And it's when Holmes is interviewing Mrs. Lexington, the housekeeper. And he asks her if Mr. Oldacre had any enemies. And she looks him in the eye and she says, Mrs. Lexington, to your knowledge, did your master have any enemies? Every man has his enemies. Every man has his enemies. You've opened my eyes to the idea of, I think this is another Moriarty uh, hint. Hmm. It's kind of the Russell T. Davies, just say Bad Wolf Bay every episode one time, and then we can hint at the finale. Like I feel like there is little throwaway lines put in here that are kind of like teasing Moriarty. Because at this point, Holmes doesn't have any enemies per se. Like People he's put away, criminals he's caught maybe, but there's not like an enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, and it is, in the, um, it is in the story, but like it's definitely like accentuated here. And while I'm not necessarily sure how... How Moriarty would be involved. I'm definitely into the idea that it's foreshadowing. I don't think he's involved. I think it's more of just John Hawksworth oh, sure. and Derek Marlowe and everybody kind of like, huh? Huh? Yeah. Enemy? Well, the mm. housekeeper has an intensity throughout the entire show, mm-hmm. probably out of nervousness because she's in some deep shit with like the owner or whatever, but she's very combative to Holmes throughout the entire thing. So it came off very intimidating. Yeah. For sure. And you're right, the shoes are not, so let's finish up the plot. The day after Lestrade triumphs, McFarlane's blood-soaked thumbprint has been found on the crime scene. But Holmes, knowing that it was not there the day before, searches the house, spots Old Acre's hiding place, and asks the constable to bring straw and wet it before setting it on fire. Wet it. Then he orders everyone to shout, Fire! Smoked out, Old Acre appears. To elude his creditor's grasp and take his revenge for Mrs. McFarlane's rejection, he had opened a bank account under the fictitious name of Cornelius and carefully staged his own murder by young McFarlane. To delude the police into believing that the clerk had burnt his corpse, Old Acre had lured, killed, and thrown into the flames the unfortunate vagrant who wore the clothes he had given him. Eventually, he had used McFarlane's thumbprint imprinted on the will cachet to be sure he would be proved guilty of murder. At one point early in the episode, they show McFarlane like sealing the wax on an envelope with his thumb. Mm-hmm. That's what they mean there, the cachet. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Old Acre was going to get away with it, except he couldn't stop meddling. Yeah. Which I, I don't, I like that idea of like Holmes was going to be beaten, except this guy couldn't just sit still. He was like, oh, I've got a perfect idea of how to really put the nail in this coffin of well, already a fully nailed coffin. It, it's, it's a good use of irony that the thumbprint that was like the open and shut, <laughs> like it's the final thing that proves it was the final thing that proved Holmes's suspicions the entire time. Right. Mm hmm. Something that that description doesn't necessarily mention is where Old Acre was hiding. Yeah, this is a bad synopsis. Yeah, everyone, I apologize. <laughs> I found it on the place where we usually get our synopses, and I don't know who wrote it, but so they're dead to us. They can't sell smokes for one thing. So Holmes notices that in the attic area, that this room is shorter than the room below it, mm-hmm. about six feet. So he thinking oh this dude was a builder that there must be a fake room in here so he lights a fire in the room to smoke him out it's very pretty smart Mm -hmm. and the look on Lestrade's face as that guy kicks the false panel out and comes crying like the look on his face of just absolute disbelief Mm -hmm. and I mean like we kind of have had this like sense of something has been building towards but for Lestrade it's just been like nope we got the guy. Oh, yeah. We got the guy. We got the guy. Holmes just conjured a dead man out of a wall. Yeah. He just 
put a new room into this house. Lestrade had a bottle of champagne chilling at his apartment for when he got home that night of like, this is it, this is the last day of the case, and we did it, we finally got him. Like, he hung the We Beat Holmes banner, all of his friends were going to come over and celebrate, and then Jonas Oldacre kicked his way out of a secret room. <laughs> and now Lestrade just went back home and dumped it down the sink. Like, he drank that bottle alone, <laughs> like looking at the banner. Um, I feel sad for Lestrade all of a sudden. <laughs> Somewhat, right? Like it's because it seemed like he had it, right? Like it's like, oh yeah, he totally oh, yeah. had it. This was gonna be a good win for him. It'd be fine, but nah. Like this is the personal victory. Like all the achievement and pr- promotions aside, he was right and Sherlock Holmes was wrong, and he did it. That's what I'm saying with the thumbprint thing, because the strade was so like, that's it, right? That was the <laughs> final nail in the coffin. We got it. We're closing this. It's all done. And then Sherlock's like, thumbprint. What do you mean? <laughs> i like in this one because we open the episode with holmes very sad that like there's no good crime anymore and then at some point in the episode he says this case is not clear to me surprised like oh no this one's like a real good one i don't even know if i could solve it (laughs) yeah and he's still like surprised too like it's like the idea that he can't automatically solve a case is like it's like he's never experienced it before it's like the first time he's ever been stumped i guess but in the stories, this is a later one, and he has been. Like, there are many episodes where it's like, hey, I'm going to have to sit on this one for, like, a day. So just mm-hmm. maybe don't talk to me for, like, 24 hours. So it's weird to me that this one, he's just like, whoa, what? Speaking of not talking to anybody for 24 hours, there's a bit where Watson comes downstairs and Holmes is just sitting there. You must permit yourself some food. You must eat. At present, I cannot afford energy and nerve force for digestion which is a very holmes thing to say i appreciate that Mm -hmm. a lot it also comes back to david burke's uh watson just talking about eating which is a weird through line for this watson especially of like being hungry or talking about eating or eating grouse something that i believe was different if i'm remembering correctly is the whole thing about the remains in the fire Mm, yeah and the vagrant scenes were added whole cloth that wasn't in the story either yeah that's not in the original story like in the original story it was cats or something it was like cat bodies or something like that that they burned in the fire to replicate Mm -hmm. remains but in this tv version old acre actually kills someone my bet would be that in adapting it they thought you know what cat dog pig whatever we need like to have him actually kill somebody to really seal the deal that this guy is going to probably hang mm-hmm. or go away forever or whatever. Like they upped it to human murder so that to give it that extra, like the crime of the whole thing, an extra weight. Yeah. Which leads to the amazing exchange at the end of the episode where see you hang for this. That privilege must surely be mine. I have it written in my notes as the old acre goodbye, which is also a trademarked band name. Nice. Before we get to uh, Must Clash, if anybody has any a little monograph or two, we actually get another monograph mention in this episode, uh, and he does it twice. Two monographs. Maybe just generally about the show is this type of show is kind of like a, I have the thought is like they don't make shows like this anymore. No. A lot, not a lot of detective shows any, like this, at least. And you can just tell they put a lot of effort into it. They got all those horses and buggies and oh, like, yeah. 
all that. There's actual horse shit on the ground outside, <laughs> as if there would be on sure. like heavily trafficked horse and buggy roads. Mm. I just really like the aesthetic of the whole show and the effort that they put into it. We've talked about the aesthetic a lot, especially this season, how much they've really nailed uh, the ambience. And I really think that they kind of did it here. It's not as dark and heavy as the last few episodes we've seen. It's a lot more like spare. I don't know. It seems like sharper images. Like most of the inside of the house is just painted very plain white. I believe John Hector McFarlane says it has a strange unloved quality about it. And I think that they really kind of nailed that in a way of just like, there's not really art. It's all white walls. There's no like fancy furnishings. It's just like this very weirdly sterile house. Mm. Which is weird because the guy's a builder, right? So he, yeah. Well, he's not a decorator. Yeah. The vibe I got from it is that he's kind of been planning this for a little bit and he's uh, been mobilizing mm-hmm. his stuff out and so now, or, and or he's been selling point. it to, to like a piece of the creditors. Mm-hmm. So he's like ready to go, basically. He has nothing left in this house. I, I thought of aesthetic as well as I love in the opening like, credit scene, they flashed the name of the episode, the Norwood Builder, over a burning building. <laughs> mm. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Like, yeah, it's, it's that fire, the remains yeah. of that fire, which I guess I took to be some kind of like, I mean, they say warehouse in the synopsis, yeah. but it was some form of the building. So it's a burning building, and that's where they flashed the Norwood Builder over a house on fire, which I thought was a really cool aesthetic touch for that. It's also uh, ostensibly where the Norwood Builder is dead, like where his corpse can be found. So it's kind of like, he's right here. This is the Norwood mm-hmm. Builder. Yeah. A little arrow came up under the Norwood Builder and pointed at the corpse. Mm-hmm. I made a note that Mrs. Lexington can't not take Watson's cane and hat when they're going upstairs so yeah. Holmes can uh, measure the, the floor landings and stuff. She's watching them very nervous and like Watson turns around and like offers her his cane hat and she like just kind of absentmindedly takes them while still looking at Holmes like she can't not do her job even though she's like, oh shit, is he onto us? <laughs> I mean, I get that. I've worked in retail long enough that I'll answer the phone like from my dad and be like, hi, welcome to the Boston Bookstore. Wait, no. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that I, I work at two theater jobs and I have at each job, I have that automatic thing I say to patrons uh, at Auditorium Theater. It's like, thank you for calling Auditorium Theater. This is Madison. How may I help you? At Blue Man, I'm scanning people in on the door and it's like, your seats are this and this and you're going down the right hallway. Please no photos or videos. My mind will switch those at times oh, no. and the other jobs. And it's really weird. All right, well, with the monographs out of the way, it's time to move on, as we must, to Must Clash. Uh, the part of the show where we pick who has the best facial hair of the episode, and then we pit them against the season champion. Uh, so far, Mr. Melos of the Greek Interpreter is the champion. So who do we think for this episode has the best facial hair? I mean, Lestrade has facial hair, doesn't he? No. He doesn't? I, mean, I think Watson's facial hair is pretty great. We have given it to Watson this season already because nobody else in the episode really had facial hair. I guess we can give him two bites at the apple. I guess Watson could just be our dis- default if nobody has good facial hair. Oh, I was going to say Mr. Oldacre. He's got a good, like, it's like mm-hmm. a Nantucket sailor beard. A lot of times you'll see very interesting mustaches or beards. In this one, it's more just kind of the face of a bear. The Vagrant had some pretty wild facial hair. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. Like, it adds a good extra inch to the side of his face, and a good, like, two or three inches to, like, the the below of his face and his like mustache is walrusy in its like yeah, dimensionality. I'm, I'm good with this. I'm, I'm good with the, the vagrant. We'll call him the sergeant because he says he's a sergeant. I think. Oh yeah. And this, and that way we don't have to keep calling him the vagrant. Right. 
so how does this match up with Mr. Melos of the Greek Interpreter, or does it at all? I think my vote's going to go for Mr. Melos. Uh, that's just a wild mustache-goatee combo, as opposed to just the kind of walrus mustache. Yeah. yeah. It's more refined. If we want season two to have any chance against the King of Bohemia, we got to get a full a full face rocking. That yeah. sounded weird. I think a standing <laughs> champ wins out. All mm. right. Jackson? Yep, standing champ. All right. Well, as Mr. Melos lives to interpret another day, we turn to plugs. Madison Jones, do you have anything to plug? Um, hmm. I do have a show with this super awesome. Handsome, dashing, probably, I'd imagine. Dashing, punny, very, very punny mm-hmm. pun maker known as Mike Knoll. Maybe you heard of him. Yeah, me, me and Mike have a show called The Equalizers where we make sequels to movies that never have ever got sequels. And it is called The Equalizers, spelled E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S. And you can find it wherever podcasts are found. Jackson, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, um, I mean, as always, I've got the other show that I run, The uh, Gratuitous Pausing. If you've been with us this far, you've probably heard me talk about it. If not... It's a film podcast. We compare films. And I have no idea where we're going to be by the time that we're recording this. So, yeah. I have a TED Talk you can find. It's called Why Watson is Useful. <laughs> you can find it by searching A Study in Granada on Google Play. Mm. Uh, by now, hopefully we're on iTunes. As we're recording, I've been in like a three-day battle with iTunes. Mm. Just because it kind of sucks. Their portal sucks. But hopefully we're on more places than just Google Play. But as of recording... You can definitely find us on Google Play. Search around if you want, but that's definitely where you can find us. Yeah. So, Thanks for joining us for The Norwood Builder. Madison, thanks for being our guest. No prop. Next week, everyone lies, including the resident patient. Be rare to meet thy go.